This is Chad S. White, author of Email Marketing Rules, 184 Best Practices to Optimize the Subscriber Experience and Drive Business Success. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back Chad S. White to talk about the fourth edition of his book, Email Marketing Rules, 184 Best Practices to Optimize the Subscriber Experience and Drive Business Success. Chad S. White is the author of four editions of Email Marketing Rules, and nearly 4,000 posts and articles about email and digital marketing. He has served as the lead email marketing researcher at four of the world's largest email service providers, Oracle, Responses, Salesforce, and ExactTarget, as well as at Litmus and the Direct Marketing Association. A former journalist at Condé Nast and Dow Jones and Company, Chad has been featured in more than 100 publications, including the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Advertising Age. He is a past recipient of the Association of National Advertisers Email Marketing Thought Leader of the Year. And, interesting fact, he is a graduate of Texas A&M University. Chad, congratulations on the fourth edition of Email Marketing Rules, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. Thanks for having me back. Well, Chad S. White, I am in a quandary now because I, you know, I went to high school in Texas, lived there for a number of years, and Texas A&M, University of Texas, big rivalry, and I'm in a, a problem because I have interviewed two Texas A&M grads, you and the other is Wendy Covey, but I have also interviewed three different University of Texas graduates. So I'm looking for another Texas A&M grad to interview in order to, you know, win the Nobel uh, Peace Prize, uh, Texas subcategory, because Chad S. White, like Will Ferrell said when imitating George W. Bush, I'm a uniter, not a divider. So if there are any Texas A&M grads out there, I've actually interviewed one, haven't heard back, but uh, unless you could get Brian Clark, the founder of Copyblogger, to write a book, uh, that might be good. He was actually the person that sprung to mind, but yeah, I'm not aware that he's written a book, but obviously... A big influencer in the industry. Yeah. You know, we, I mentioned this last time uh, we were together that my parents met and fell in love at UT. And so I don't have the animosity that I think some Aggies have towards UT. So um, I, I definitely have that sort of like, you know, hey, we're all kind of united and in the same place. We're not even in the same conference anymore. So I'm super happy to kind of bury the hatchet of this rivalry and move on. That's not going to happen, Chad. Now, when your parents <laughs> go to the alumni parties and the uh, uh, reunions, um, how, 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 how are they treated when people find out that they had a son that went to <laughs> Texas A&M? 
<laughs> Are they even uh, invited they- back? They're treated just fine. Okay. Okay. Well, listen, when I was in uh, Texas as a kid, Aggie jokes were really funny. Uh, that was a big thing. Are, are Aggie jokes still a big thing? Uh, I'll confess that up here in Massachusetts, where I currently live, Aggie jokes, not a big thing. Um, okay. I, you know, I was always very flattered. By Aggie jokes. Yes. Like, I felt like there was so much attention. Yeah, Aggies like Aggie jokes more than anybody. Sort of like uh, Jeff Foxworthy makes fun of rednecks, and rednecks love the jokes the most. So not that A&M people are rednecks. I know what you UT people are thinking. So anyway, listen, you live in Boston. You mentioned Massachusetts. Let me just ask you a real quick question. Uh, do you need any appliances for your home? Uh, not currently, no. Okay, okay. Well, if you do... You need to go to Yale Appliance. Now, Yale Appliance, you may have heard of them. They're not a sponsor. But Steve Scheinkoff, he's the CEO. He listens to every episode of the Marketing Book Podcast, and he's actually sent me several bottles of wine, which all of you listeners are free to do. And he is uh, featured in Marcus Sheridan's book, They Ask You Answer. Uh, There's a whole case study about how they – are answering customer questions, and they have phenomenal amounts of traffic, and they are really doing content marketing right. I'm sure they're doing the the email marketing right. But he's become a friend of mine, and when I say he's become a friend of mine, what I mean is that I like to give him a hard time. So if there are any listeners out there uh, who need appliances in the Boston area, I need you to go to one of the Yale Appliance stores, ask for Steve Scheinkoff, and just give him a hard time. But I I do have to say, though, I should stop saying this because I mentioned that earlier in an earlier episode. And Steve calls me a few days later and says, hey, my sale head of sales is, is uh, yelling at me going, what the hell is this marketing book podcast discount? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish I had known about that because I will tell you, Douglas, so this past year, uh, we did some renovations to our house and we, we renovated our kitchen. Uh, we live in a, a, a Cape Cod house that was built in 1940, and so we did a major gut renovation oh, of wow. the kitchen, and we got our appliances at Yale. Oh, you did? We did. Oh, so you're a Yale appliance customer. Excellent. Well, now you're, now you're probably going to get a call from uh, Steve Scheinkoff. But folks, there is no discount. There is no special. <laughs> please. But please go in and give him a hard time and uh, you know go from there. Now, you were on episode 130 back in 2017. This is going to be episode 436. So... Every 306 episodes, uh, about every six years or so, I'm planning on Chad S. White coming back. So for those playing the home game, please pencil in episode 742. That'll be March 30th, 2029. Chad, now you've got some goals, some long-term goals. to. Uh, I'm, I'm going to hold that place open for you. All right? I've written it down. Uh, excellent. Excellent. Now, Chad, I was a bit disappointed that your book did not include advice on how to move large sums of money on behalf of Nigerian princes. And I'm still waiting for several of them to get back to me now that I've provided them with my uh, bank account information. So if the phone rings while we're interviewing, I'm going to have to take the call. But your book was endorsed by several luminaries, including three authors that I've had the honor of interviewing several times, Jay Baer, Anne Hanley, and Joe Polizzi. And when your book was on the show in 2017. At that point, it was the longest book that I had ever had on the podcast. It was 464 pages. However, that book, just like this one, you know, listeners don't be thrown off by the number of pages because it's a very, very fast read. And it's a smaller sized book. It's more like a handbook or a desk reference. So it's like 
I measured it, okay? You know, when you're the host of the Marketing Boot Podcast, you do research. It's five by eight inches. Or for those people that are not in those three countries around the world that use the imperial system, it's 12.7 by 20.32 centimeters. You're welcome. But it's got lots of checklists. It's very scannable, uh, much like good email is. This book has, gosh, over 600 pages, something like 670 pages. So once again, it's the longest book that's been on the show, but by far, I didn't take me as long to read as many of the other books on the show. It's also the first book on the show that is in two volumes. <laughs> so, you know, there's a first time for everything. And one, one thing, seriously, though, I, I want to mention about your book is that, of course, when I read books, I think of other books. And your book reminds me of two books about sales that have been on the show by an author named Lee Sauls. His books are all about how to differentiate your company based on how you sell which is one of the best ways. And there are certain things that you should do to differentiate your company, but how you sell, he argues, is one of the most effective ways to differentiate your company, particularly you know, when we're all at parity with our competition. And I'll include links to both his interviews in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. The reason I say that is because after you're reading your book, I am reminded that how a company handles their email and all aspects of it can be a subconscious preview to a prospective customer about how they're going to be treated as a customer. Absolutely. So I want to read an excerpt from page 14, and then uh, I got quite a few questions for you there, Mr. White. So on page 14, you write, the rules cover a wide range of email marketing topics because a broad understanding of the channel is necessary to excel, whether you're looking to master a discipline, a pillar, or the entirety of email marketing. For example, It's impossible to be a great email designer if you don't have a healthy appreciation for the other disciplines within email creative, copywriting, coding, and landing pages. Similarly, it's impossible to master email deliverability without understanding targeting, list building, and other disciplines within email strategy. And it's definitely impossible to be a great manager or director of email marketing, or a good chief marketing officer for that matter, without a solid foundation in all the key pillars of the channel, including a deep familiarity with your marketing platform's capabilities. This book will give you that solid foundation, especially if you're new to the channel. And for more experienced marketers, these rules can act as an email marketing audit, reminding you of all the aspects of your program and helping you identify improvements. So true, so true. So Chad, Explain how the book is organized in terms of the fourth section, uh, who it's written for, and what's new or different in this fourth edition. Yeah, so let me first talk about why I wrote the first edition of EO Marketing Rules. So that was because I was really alarmed at how a lot of people were disrespecting best practices. They were saying things like, the best practice is the practice that's best for your business, which is complete nonsense. Uh, Best practices exist at the industry level, and they're rooted largely in consumer expectations for how things work. And in the email space, they're also rooted in the expectations of inbox providers, as well as laws, both here in the U.S. and around the world, um, and also affected by the behaviors of the best and worst email marketers. So a lot of interactions going on there. And while it's okay 
to break some rules, you really need to realize and appreciate when you are going against the expectations of consumers and especially inbox providers. Uh, I frequently will talk about how some people say, oh, rules make everything the same. They create the sameness and it's hard to differentiate yourself. And my response is that, well, automakers don't seem to have a problem differentiating their product, even though every vehicle has four wheels, has brakes and seats and a steering wheel, a gear shift, and tons and tons of other elements that are all the same. The execution is what differentiates you, not the rules that are involved. And that's how I try to write things. And so that's why I wrote the first edition. Now, why do I keep updating it? Well, you've created a monster. You can't stop now. <laughs> yeah. so, but it's it's really it's it's twofold, and hopefully make hopefully make a lot more sense when I explain. So there's there's two things going on. Uh, the first thing is is that email marketing is changing. It's evolving, and since like over the past six years since I wrote the third edition, there's been a lot of new developments. Things like Beamy, Dark Mode for email, AMP for email, Schema customer data platforms, omni-channel orchestration is something we're now talking about, the phase-out of third-party cookies, Apple's mail privacy protection is a big change. And so there's a lot of sort of structural changes to how email marketing works that wasn't reflected in the third edition that I thought it was about time I had reflected. Now, mm-hmm. the second thing, the reason why I keep writing new editions is because I keep learning new things. So as much as I hope to be a part of my readers' email marketing journeys. They're also a part of mine. I'm learning new things all the time, and so I fold those things into the new edition. So I think the overall message with this fourth edition, though, is that email marketing is as powerful as it's ever been, but it's definitely getting increasingly complex. And that that excerpt that you read, I think, really drives that point home. It used to be that you could be really good at email design and kind of only email design. But today, it's just everything is so interwoven and complex that you really need to understand sort of the big, big picture of what's going on. And so that's a lot of what I try to capture uh, throughout my book. Now, you did mention it's divided into to four parts. Uh, and you also mentioned that my book is like very scannable and is, is sort of a bit of a, a desktop reference. And I definitely have yeah. a lot of a lot of readers who treat it that way, right? They have a question, they have an area they want to focus on. I definitely have a lot of more advanced email marketers that love my book because it helps them kind of focus in on a certain area that they know they need to address. It allows them to kind of show that to other stakeholders in their business to kind of get buy-in for why this is important. So I love the fact that people use it in different ways. But let me talk about the four parts of the book. So Part one is what I call the must-follow rules. These are sort of, you know, as much as they are, rules are kind of laws of email marketing. They're the ones you don't want to mess with. A lot of people talk about, oh, I can bend the rules. Like, these are 18 rules that you don't want to bend because they put you (laughs) in dire straits pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those are around permission and about your sender reputation and not getting into trouble uh, with either the law or with inbox providers. So 
that's part one. And there, with the fourth edition, not a lot of major changes. There's there's three new rules. I, I talk about you know bulk cold emailing and not forwarding emails on behalf of subscribers, but not you know a lot of updates, but not major major changes there. Uh, part two is what I call recommended rules. These are the rules that sometimes you can bend and break, but for the most part, they're still kind of foundational. Mm-hmm. Um, and here, there's 31 new rules. And tons of updates to the existing rules that kind of bring new nuance to it. And I cover a lot of brand new things in these uh, in these rules, you know, things like accessibility and dark mode optimization, uh, and also some new topics like talking about uh, RFPs, requests for proposals, which is something I didn't talk about uh, before. So a lot of new content there. But probably the, the thing that I'm kind of the most excited about in, uh, in part two, but also part one, is that I've now added over 200 exercises at the end of each of the rules that kind of drive home how to put the rule into practice. Uh, I think that sometimes you could just read the rule and you can kind of say like, oh yeah, like I do that. Um, but the rule, the exercises kind of prod you to, to go deeper and really see if you're indeed doing the thing. So, Right, and instance, that ties it back to the concept of an audit. Yes, yeah, right. Which again, people have always told me they've used it that way, and that inspired me to like, hey, let me add some exercises to really make it even more of a useful audit tool. So I did want to share a couple of them. So rule seventy-five is make your email sign-up forms user-friendly, and I talk about several ways in which brands can do that. And so here on this rule, there's two exercises. Exercise A says review your email opt-in forms. Are you using things like autofill, autocompletion, autocapitalization, and providing a matching keyboard when appropriate? It's like really forcing people to go and look at their yeah, various yeah. forms. And <laughs> I think nine times out of 10, they're going to see things that they did not expect to see because they thought they were in a good position, but when you really get into it, you know, they're not. And then exercise B was to visit you know, their mobile website, and and do some of the same uh, kinds of things, but also to sign up for their competitors' yes. emails. And so, looking at what your competitors are doing on their sign up forms, now you can start to make some comparisons and get some new ideas. So that's rule seventy five with its two exercises. Some of the rule, the few of the rules have zero exercises. Some have as many as three, so it really varies. And another rule I wanted to to point out was. Um, Rule 111, which is pay attention, pay extra attention to the top portion of your email that appears above the fold mm-hmm. and ensure that it's well branded. And again, I think this is another one of those things where people could say, like, okay, I see what he's saying, you know, and I have a lot of detail about what should kind of fall there and what the various elements are. Um, but I feel like people can like dismiss that. So the exercise there is to review some of your campaigns from the past 30 days, looking at what appears above the fold on desktop and on mobile. So like before you scroll, what do you see? And it has questions about like, you know, how compelling is that content? And I think in a lot of cases, people might find that they actually have like a lot of an image, like a hero image, like peeking up into the above the fold area and maybe that or image, a big logo. You know, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes logos are too big and definitely push down a lot of content. Yeah. So it's all about like these exercises are all about like forcing people to go and examine their own work and really ask 
way more concrete questions about what they are doing and how much they are kind of living up to some of these these rules. And then I have part three, which is now in volume two. So volume one is parts one and two, and then volume two is parts three and four. And in part three, this is sort of the bigger picture. This mm-hmm. kind of like stitches a lot of the rules together so you can kind of see how they all interconnect. So volume one is great for like drilling down into particular issues and making really clear tactical changes. You know, when you get into volume two, it's much more of a higher level strategic view of how all these things interconnect, uh, which is, I think, really, really important. And so here I've got a bunch of new chapters I talk about things like data capture and data creepiness, which I'd never talked about before. I talk about content planning, talk about nurturing email marketing innovation. And one of the other big new things uh, that's in volume two is I have these massive checklists yes. that, that go into some really important areas. So I have checklists about subscriber acquisition sources, email metrics, segmentation and personalization criteria, automated emails, A-B testing ideas, and emails, cross-channel synergies. And just to give you sort of an example, the segmentation and personalization criteria checklist has 165 different criteria that are organized by data type. So demographic data, firmographic data, psychographic data, and on and on. So you can really kind of you know use this checklist to say, hey, what data do I have currently Am I using that data in my email marketing program? Am I using it elsewhere you know, in, in my marketing? Uh, and what are some of these data points that might be useful? Let me see if I can get those, or maybe I have them. Can I make them actionable within my program? So it's a really great way to, you know, again, sort of do an audit and make real tactical you know, strategic improvements to your program. Mm-hmm. And then part four in volume two is about the future of the channel. And in the third edition, I made 11 predictions for the next 10 years. So we're sort of you know, more than halfway towards the goal. And uh, as far as I can tell, like about seven of those 11 have either already come true or are on track to be true. And that's better than most predictors. <laughs> it's not bad. I feel yeah. pretty good about that, yeah. to, be, to be honest. Uh, I also like to make sometimes predictions that I really wish would happen, uh, even if yeah. I don't think they're terribly likely. Um, so I, I will confess, some of my predictions are aspirational. <laughs> but right. so anyways, 7 out of 11, not too bad in the predictions yeah. business. And this one you so, have four, as I recall. Yes, that's right. So Which in we the can talk edition, about in a, in a few minutes if we have time. Yeah. Yeah, so I have four that I feel really strongly about that I think are really big deals, big movers, and I spend you know a bit of time talking about those. So those are the four parts across the two volumes, and you know, hopefully you're kind of getting a sense now that volume one and volume two are kind of for slightly different people. Now, I do hope that like the vast majority of people that are interested in email marketing are going to buy both. Uh, I think if you are a director of email marketing – if you're a manager of email marketing, both make a ton of sense for you. Yes. However, if you are, you know, a specialist within email marketing, it might make more sense for you to just buy volume one. At the same time, if you're like a CMO or a VP of marketing, someone who oversees lots of marketing channels, I think volume two is the one that's probably going to give you the most bang for the buck. It's going to get you a really good understanding of 
how, like the big picture of how deliverability works, the big picture of how data collection works, the big picture of how personalization works. So you can really have a nice uh, set of sort of guidelines and you understand like where the boundaries are and how all these things, all the various elements within these issues all kind of work together. So it's sort of that bigger picture. And then, you know, the folks that are, you know, are on your team, more of the nuts and bolts people, they're the ones that are going to get a lot out of volume one. Well, well, as a guy who's read both, <laughs> I found that having read volume one made volume two uh, that much better because in part you call back to certain foundational elements from the first volume. So anyway, come on, folks, buy them both <laughs> and for your team. So, well, let's, let's get to a couple of just a couple of really big things uh, that I know this is going to be frustrating because you're, there's so much in your book, but I wanted to pull out a few things that I think folks are either going to be surprised by or that they're doing wrong or that might be a myth uh, that they are entertaining. So on page three, you write that email marketing's return on investment is significantly higher than that of paid search, social media, and other digital channels, and way higher than that of traditional channels. Uh, and that's because email marketing has a number of compelling and unique characteristics. What are they? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, email is really <laughs> amazing. I think the, the biggest thing for me is that it's an open platform. Mm -hmm. Nobody owns email marketing. And that, for um, me, was the biggest takeaway from this reader uh, uh, when I read the third edition. A, a, an understanding of that it's it's an open platform versus like a walled garden, as they say. Yes, yeah, versus a MySpace or a Google Wave or a Google Plus that are all gone, you know, or versus uh, Twitter right now, which is undergoing pretty massive changes, yeah, and uh, and could be a very different platform, you know, a year from now. So yeah, I think that's sort of that's the big that's the big big one because when nobody owns it, it makes it harder to change it in a radical way. Although certainly, I think Apple with MPP definitely made a pretty significant change, but you know the foundation of it is still very solid. Uh, it also keeps costs low. That's one of the things that people like very much laud about email marketing is that it's relatively inexpensive compared to other channels. I think that does somewhat undercut it to a certain degree. It does have a reputation of being cheap. And as a consequence, it is actually you know, relatively easy to get a decent ROI out of email marketing while not being particularly good at it, um, which is kind of unfortunate and somewhat responsible for some of the like poor experiences that are out there. Um, and I always encourage like, so I, I have an analogy that I like a lot is that, you know, imagine you went to Vegas and you found a penny slot machine and you dumped in a hundred pennies and you got, you know, an $80 return on your $1 you put in there. Uh, it seems like a lot of people apparently would just get up and leave and be very happy with that great return that they just got. Uh, and that seems really sad to me. I want you to stay at that machine and keep dumping your pennies in until you drive that ROI down uh, to something that still 
you know, thrashes a lot of, you know, traditional channels, which have very paltry returns. Um, but certainly, like, drive that thing down. Um, so I see a lot of people settling. Drive the ROI down? Yeah, drive that ROI down. Don't you want to drive ROI up? Well, so the ROI is a rate of return. It is not an absolute return, right? Like, some people brag about how they have, like, you know, an 80 to 1, or even I've heard people brag about having a 100 to 1 email marketing return on investment. And to me, like, that just reeks of like lost opportunities because that means they're grabbing all of the low hanging fruit, all the stuff that was like relatively easy that had really good returns. They grabbed all that good for them. You should totally do that. Everybody should grab all the low hanging fruit, but then they stopped. There's so much ability to like further optimize and do more work in email that then would generate returns that were smaller that might only be 40 to 1 or 20 to 1, which is still an amazing ROI compared to other channels. So one of the things I see repeatedly is sort of good enough syndrome Mm. setting in with Mm -hmm. email marketers where they're like, oh, our email channel is killing it, delivering, you know, 40 to 1, 51 returns or even something even higher. And they're like, great. And they wash their hands and they move on. All right, let me go dump some more time into, you know, some of these other channels that are generating returns that are like 3 to 1. And like, the math just doesn't make sense to me. I don't know why you would do that. So I think that's one of the big problems with emails that's sort of chronically underinvested in. Uh, So anyway, I got a little bit off, off, uh, off task there, but you know, that great ROI is sometimes a, a, a double-edged sword, but email is great for a lot of other reasons besides the fact that that platform is open and very cost-effective. You know, you know, the email accounts are like that account of record, that, that great identifier that you can use across other channels. That's super important. Email supports rich content. You can do video and email now. You can do all kinds of interactivity in email. That's amazing. Everybody has their email inbox with them in their pocket right now on their phone. In terms of, certainly in comparison to other channels, email is highly measurable. Um, It's not perfect. There's definitely a lot of noise and imperfections in there, but compared to certainly a lot of traditional channels, very measurable. Um, And you can do amazing targeting using email that you can't do on a lot of other channels without paying a lot of money to have targeted ads. Um, And I think the future of email is really bright because of things like the phase out of third-party cookies. Uh, The ability of email to deliver zero and first-party data is incredibly high, just like it is for loyalty programs. So there's a lot of opportunity there uh, for email to really shine in the years ahead because of these unique characteristics that it has. Well, okay, Mr. Email Marketing, but are there downsides to email? There absolutely are. So that open platform... Full disclosure. Been, yeah. So that open platform I've been lauding definitely comes with... What I see are sort of two major disadvantages that I think all email marketers are pretty well aware of. The first is deliverability. All the inbox providers have different rules, different algorithms that they use, and they don't publish these algorithms. They don't publish the rules in any like way that like makes it super easy to follow. And so deliverability is absolutely 
one of the things that's really tricky about email marketing. But I got a lot of great advice for you there that'll yes. help you keep you in, in good stead. And then the second thing is rendering. Uh, and I guess I would say even beyond rendering, I would just say like email functionality. Um, it's very inconsistent from one, you know, from Gmail to Yahoo to even across like, you know, you know, the, the web to apps there, you know, of the same inbox, there's different functionality, different support. So that makes it a little bit tricky for sure. And there, I think the big takeaway is that, you know, in today's marketplace, you're really trying to create the best experience possible for like the full range of your subscribers and the various email clients and devices that they're, they're using. And the things you'll be doing won't necessarily work everywhere, but you'll be using fallbacks that create decent experiences for folks who can't have that best experience. Right. It's not like producing a print ad and knowing that it's going to render perfectly in a magazine. Yes. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, definitely brand folks have struggles with email because I think they want everything to be print. <laughs> they want everything like the logo to be perfect. They want their own custom, you know, fonts to work. They want the, you know, the image treatments to be exactly so with exactly the right kind of rounded edges and things like that. And with email marketing, you just have to make some concessions. Um, the platform doesn't support all of those kinds of nitpicky things perfectly. Right. And so I know that drives a lot of brand managers bonkers, but you have to make some some sacrifices there and resist the temptation to, for instance, you know, put your your pet font in an image rather than having it be HTML text, which you should absolutely do at every point that you possibly can, because that creates a much better user experience. Yes. Well I had to laugh when you wrote that because almost everyone uses email every day, people falsely assume that they understand email marketing. <laughs> and it brought yeah. back my days in the advertising agency world where, because everyone had seen a TV commercial, they were then all experts on how to create effective <laughs> television advertising. Yeah, so for those, for those folks, when you encounter those people at work, please give them volume two. <laughs> right. It will help them out. Yes. But, I mean, there's definitely tons of like higher-up execs that like, they're like, oh, I'm sending emails all the time. And they just don't understand the intricacies yes. of what's going on, especially with design. If you're not sending a text-based email, which the vast majority of marketing emails are not heavily text-based because HTML with images and everything else performs better in the vast majority of cases, you know, not only do they not understand that, but they don't understand all of the data issues around personalization and segmentation and automation, all these things um, that create really powerful messages. They don't do that because they never send anything like that. They're just sending an email to, you know, one person or a small right. group of people. So the, uh, yeah, there's not a lot of analogy, but that is absolutely one of the things that, I think a lot of email marketers still today hear from their bosses that like just don't get it. Buy them volume one, sneak into their office, <laughs> put that on their desk yeah. for them to find, and then they'll get a better understanding of just how complicated it is. I think probably, you know, not only around the design and things like that, but also deliverability. They don't understand that at all. Uh, a lot of folks who are really high up the chain, they just don't understand how complicated it is, which is why so often they're saying, well, just send another email, just send another email. And you can get into trouble fast with that kind of mentality. Uh. 
Yeah. Well, just let me just ask two other things from the very beginning that are universal for email. Uh, could you talk about the idea that even though email is a fairly mature channel now, uh, email marketing experience is not common and institutional support is subpar. What are you seeing out there? Yeah. So it is a little bit vexing <laughs> that if you go to college for marketing, chances are you'll probably get at most one day of instruction on email marketing in one of your courses. That's probably it. Um, and you may get none. <laughs> yeah. But, it, I, but I, 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 the reason why I say vexing is because you'll absolutely find entire classes dedicated to social media, which, and that's not a knock on social media. That's absolutely uh, an important uh, you know, channel. But it also is one that changes... I feel like pretty quickly <laughs> by yeah. the time you graduate, um, chances are the social media landscape has probably changed in some significant ways uh, and you'll probably still have a, a good foundation to work from. Um, but I, I feel that like email is changing a lot less, uh, even though it is, again, definitely getting more complicated and has more wrinkles. Uh, I think the, the foundation there is much more stable. Uh, I mean, folks that like four years ago, you know, got, you know, a class on social media, like TikTok probably wasn't even, you know, I don't think TikTok was even around four years ago. Um, and now it's huge. So, you know, I feel like that's just like, there's like this big hole in the education system when it comes to email marketing. It's just constantly sort of discounted as being important. And I know that it sort of sounds like I'm I'm whining a little bit about that. However, I think it's a really awesome thing for email marketers who are already in the space. Because what that means is that there isn't this constant stream of new graduates who know a lot about email marketing. They know nothing. You know, so if you have a lot of email marketing knowledge, that's gold yes. because it is very hard to find people with solid email marketing knowledge. And again, that's part of the reason why certainly you know, I continue to, to write new editions of email marketing rules is you know, I definitely have a lot of readers that say like, you know, your book you know, gave me the foundation of my email marketing education, which is amazing to hear. I mean, there's... But I mean, outside of, you know, books like mine, there's like some classes, like certification program, like workshops and stuff and going to conferences. There's not really a highly formalized way of getting this knowledge. And so many email marketers get this knowledge the hard way, which is on the job, you know, day in and day out. I mean, that's the hardest way, I think, to, to gain all this knowledge. So I'm, I'm hoping that my book really is like a catapult for folks to really kind of come into the space and know how things work in a foundational way. But uh, yeah, not, not a lot of people coming in to steal email marketers' jobs. Right. And I don't want to tell uh, the academia people how to, how to do that, how to run their schools, but it, it occurs to me that if you're granting a degree, let's say a Bachelor of Science in Marketing, and you, they're, you're requiring them to take statistics, it seems now, and accounting, 
they would you would also have a course on email marketing just because of the usefulness and the practicality and the demand for it. So one other question from the beginning that I wanted to ask, and then we're going to have to uh, do a whirlwind tour of the rest, but and this applies to a lot of marketing, but explain what you mean when you write that the chances are quite good that you have a lot less in common with your subscribers than you think. Yeah, so I think this this is also, I feel like, another one of these things that really affects a lot of executives. Um, they feel like they, they understand their audience. They feel like they understand them a lot better than they actually do. <laughs> All like, the time. <laughs> yeah, consumers are really tricky. And so, like, for, to give you just an example. So, I love A-B tests. And sometimes when I'm at conferences or at events, folks will be sharing A-B tests and they'll be asking the audience, like, okay, which do you think would do better? Now, you might expect (laughs) that someone like me would be right a lot. And I'm right probably about two-thirds of the time. The other third of the time... As it relates to email marketing, but maybe not around the house. Yeah. Oh, well, that's a different subject. But... (laughs) So that even someone like me who's like been in this space for 17 years, yeah. written a lot, nearly 4,000 <laughs> posts and articles, even I'm only right two-thirds of the time when when given you know an A-B test. Like, so what does so, that tell us? Yeah. So it tells us that consumers and subscribers are kind of – they're really tricky. And the thing that you think they're going to respond to, they don't always respond to it. And I'm having a little bit of that moment now with all the talk about generative AI and people talking about how, oh, we'll use generative AI to do all kinds of like crazy personalization. And, you know, part of my thought is like, okay, well, good luck with that. Um, I Why think don't you get the basics squared away first? Yeah, let's get the basics. But also like not every bit of personalization like really moves the needle. You know, I, I talked about that checklist with 165 different personalization segmentation criteria, uh, most of those, the vast majority of those won't do anything for your program. Like you need to understand which levers to pull. So yeah, it's it's not, it's really hard and you got to do a lot of testing to really try to understand what actually moves the needle for your particular audience because everybody's audience is different and always evolving. Um, so yeah, so even someone like me, I'm I'm wrong uh, uh, like too often, you know, to like just go on gut. Yeah, it brings to mind a book that was on the show a few years ago called Making Websites Work. And it was uh, all about conversion rate optimization and testing and uh, all that sort of thing and in the book they uh, they talk about how you don't really have to completely redo your whole website. Just focus on that one page and test it and figure it out. And at the end of the interview, I said, you know, what's what's what do you think is the biggest takeaway? And uh, they said, nobody knows anything. <laughs> and these are website <laughs> testing experts. And they said, so at some point, like you, they kind of gave up trying to predict what was going to happen. They just would test things because <laughs> they never – they didn't have this uh, overwhelming confidence that they knew what was going to work on a website. They would just test it. Yeah. I mean, definitely having a testing mentality is really key. Hopefully, a lot of the rules and principles in my book like put you in the ballpark, and then testing yes. can put you on the right base. Yeah. Um, 
So that, that's- and it's okay to fail. I mean, it's okay to test. You know, one of the best things I think a CEO or a senior person could say to their marketing people when they, let's say they're presenting a marketing plan for the next year or next quarter or whatever, one of the best questions you could ask, and this is beyond email marketing, is what are you going to be testing? Because then it encourages them to be testing things and makes them feel like they're not going to be a failure for for testing things. Well, Chad, let's go to part one, the must-follow rules. I may only be able to ask you one question from this part. But I like to joke that there are four things you should never buy because it never ends well when you do, okay? And they are uh, meth, uh, links to your website, fake social media followers, and email addresses. Explain why purchasing email addresses is one of the worst things you can do, much like buying meth. Yeah, I, I would say to avoid buying all of those things for sure, <laughs> especially the first one. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you can't buy permission. And it's kind of that simple. I mean, you can absolutely buy email addresses. So you're you saying can't. there's no such thing as a list for sale that's 100% opt-in? <laughs> no such thing. Yeah, I, I do see that routinely, talking about 100%. Like, I just... Take a deep breath and imagine who is giving anybody permission to sell their email address to whomever to receive messages and will be cool with those messages. Like yeah. it just it doesn't happen. Um, so you can't buy permission. Also, with one of the you know that's a huge danger. Another big danger with buying email addresses is that often these lists are compiled in very nefarious ways, scraping websites, scraping LinkedIn. Um, and with web scraping tools, you tend to scrape up a lot of addresses that are not great. So role-based addresses, which are generally not great to, uh, to send emails to, but also That would be like, uh, like sales at yourcompany.com? Right, or marketing at. Right. Yeah, yeah. so those are not great, but, but then also spam traps. And so spam traps, uh, for folks who don't know, are email addresses. There's a variety of different kinds, but sort of the most dangerous one are called pristine spam traps. And these are email addresses that are set up by uh, inbox providers and by block list operators that are then sneakily put onto the web in places that nobody can find them except for these web scraping tools. Right. It's like leaving a dollar on the sidewalk. (laughs) Someone's going to pick it up. Yeah. Right. And when you email that address, that tells the block list operator, the inbox provider that, hey, this is somebody who is scraping the internet. They're not behaving as they're supposed to. This is not an opt-in address. And just having even a few spam traps on your mailing list can tank your deliverability big time. Right. And it reminds me of when someone on a, in a movie, I've, I've never been involved in a bank robbery, but when somebody robs a bank and the teller puts the money in the bag and they also put one of those canisters in mm-hmm. with dye or paint and then it explodes as they're driving away, that's what, that's what the spam traps remind me of. I think that's a good analogy. Explain what a cinder reputation is because that's the one that can really come back to bite you. Yeah, so sender reputation is how each of the inbox providers views you and your sort of credibility um, in terms of how you are treating your subscribers and how you are behaving in terms of following 
their rules. They have expectations of senders, and they quantify that by something called a sender reputation. Now, that includes things like hitting spam traps. It also includes, especially today, it includes how engaged your subscribers are. So if you are sending messages to subscribers and they are opening them at very low rates uh, and clicking them at really low rates and deleting them without reading them at high rates, that's bad. So engagement is a huge, massive factor today. Um, spam complaints, also important, but engagement actually way more important today. And so that, along with things like authentication and other elements, get kind of bundled together into a sender reputation. And the other really important thing about sender reputations today is that they used to be just attached to the IP address that you would send your emails from. And so some people would, if their reputation got bad, they would shut down that IP address and start up a new one and they would refresh their reputation. Doesn't work that way anymore. Yeah. Inbox Spiders got on to that. And right. today they not only attach your sender reputation to your IP address, they attach it to your domain. So unless you are prepared to shut down your website and start up a brand new domain, uh, you're not going to be able to run away from a bad sender reputation. But you've also probably means- seen situations where companies simply couldn't get their email out because they had such bad reputations. Oh, absolutely. And you know, again, today you can't run away. So you've got to do the remediation to you know, reinvigorate your reputation. You've got to take lots of steps back and undo some of those bad behaviors um, to get back in the good graces of inbox providers. Yeah, it's like having a bad credit score. <laughs> it's very similar to having a bad credit yeah. score. Right, right. The, the banks don't want to lend you money. The inbox providers don't want to let you in with your emails. And so you've got to change your, your credit score um, to get back in uh, the bank's good graces. Very similar. Well, I want to jump to something that I think is going to be helpful for marketers, and it's it's a hobby horse I'm on often. Let's talk about something important. Marketers, I'm now going to read from page 102, which is very important information on how to speak to civilians about email and email marketing. And when I say civilians, longtime listeners will know I'm referring to when you're talking to anyone outside your marketing department, particularly your management. Okay, page 102 is about translating email success into business success. Email metrics like opens, clicks, unsubscribes, and spam complaints are important to track because they indicate campaign engagement and email channel health. However, none of those directly translate into business success. Supplement those email-centric metrics with business-focused metrics such as sales conversions, average order size, revenue per subscriber, return on investment, and customer lifetime value. Those metrics directly impact email channel success, and business success. For that reason, use these metrics when communicating success to your leaders. Too often, marketers try to speak email to business leaders when they should be speaking business to them. This is particularly critical when arguing for new resources, shifts in priorities, or other program changes or growth initiatives. Oh, have I got your attention now? And that's not all. I want to go to page 625. And... (laughs) This is so important, folks. And it's not just for email. It's all kinds of things you're doing as a marketer. 
You write, communicate like a boss. Email marketers and executives sometimes talk past each other. That's because email marketers often talk too much about subscriber reactions and email engagement and not nearly enough about email channel success metrics and how those support the big picture goals of the brand. Instead of wishing (laughs) that executives had a better appreciation of how email list health and email delivery deliverability underpin the channel's ability to drive revenue and loyalty, it's best to translate email marketing performance into metrics that executives care about, like revenue, profits, and customer retention. Talk about how email marketing supports the overall customer experience across channels. Couch email marketing initiatives within larger initiatives like business transformations, as well as within regulatory compliance and brand compliance requirements. And finally, communicate clear business cases for initiatives and expansions, supporting them with successful A-B tests, pilots, case studies, and intel about competitors' email marketing programs. Okay, I'm going to get down off my soapbox, but those are some of the most valuable lessons for marketers. Stop expecting your management to understand about your uh, email marketing. Maybe give them volume two. But I guess you see this a lot uh, in your world of the disconnect between the marketers and the management? Yeah, so not only that, and and I think Douglas, you might feel even more strongly about this than I do (laughs) based on that setup, but um, I think one of the big shifts that's happening right now is that, and and has been ongoing for the last several years, is that email marketing is de-siloing in a major way. You know, a lot of marketing departments have been built in silos. You know, here's the email program. It sort of does its own thing. Here's the web program, sort of does its own thing. Here's the social media folks. They're kind of doing their own thing. And increasingly driven by things like customer data platforms, uh, you know, brands are able to kind of better see how all of these channels work together to create a common experience. I like to say that consumers don't engage with channels, they engage with brands, and they have for a long, long time. Consumers have expected brands to understand how they're engaging with them across all of their channels for a long time now, and they get really ticked off when that isn't the case. So I think that this, this sort of omni-channel mindset is one of the things that's you know, definitely driving email marketers and other you know, channel marketers to try to learn better how to communicate with other departments, with uh, certainly the higher-ups, because collaboration is really the name of the game for the next 10 years in marketing. You know, I think communication skills need to be way better. I think analytic skills need to be way better. And it's because of this need to be able to stitch together a coherent customer experience across channels, just like consumers have expected of us for a long time now. Mm-hmm. And we're going to come back to that in a minute when we talk about the future. Chad S. White, I must have... 50 technical questions I want to ask you, and I'm not going to ask you a single one, (laughs) because in our remaining time, I want to ask about just a couple of really big concepts. And one of them is from page 413. (laughs) Explain this where you say, part of the reason email marketing gets abused is that many marketers think about their email list as something they own. Yes. And I definitely hear this a lot. I am I am not a fan of the of the PO media model. This is the paid 
owned, earned media model. Uh, I think it's outdated. I don't think it accurately reflects how things operate today. Many channels operate today. So for instance, social media, a lot of other people, not, not just me, a lot of other people say that this is really rented media or leased media. Yes. Um, You've got the Pogle media. You've got the Pogle model. Yeah. P-O-G-L-E. I like to add in least, and I also like to add in granted. And granted is where I put email marketing. It's also where I put SMS marketing because, yes, you control the message and you control the list, but third parties control that distribution, whether or not it gets to its intended destination and have a lot of control. It's not like the postal service, which will deliver anything you pay them to deliver, you know, without fail for the mm-hmm. most part. Um, they Important don't really care what that. it is, yeah. you know, and, but that's not what happens with email or with SMS. Those gatekeepers pay attention to complaints and in case of email engagement. So, yeah, so, absolutely not owned. You own an email address, but you don't own permission. Permission is granted. Mm-hmm. And that's a major distinction in how you think about your list. It's, you know, I think I refer to it somewhere as you know, a collection of handshake agreements that can be sort of undone at any time. Yes. Right? Lists are owned only to the extent that someone can own a collection of non-binding handshake agreements. Loved it. Yeah. So that's how you really need to think about it. And so you, you know, you get that permission grant and that's great. Now your job becomes how do I maintain permission? That is that becomes your new mission after you get permission is to maintain it. And you maintain it by sending messages that resonate with that individual subscriber that they find valuable, uh, that hopefully is tailored to their interests and doesn't come too often as far as they're concerned. Yeah, so paid, own, and earn, people are more familiar with. Granted media is email marketing, SMS marketing, search engine authority, and leased media would be social media accounts, mobile apps, mobile push, browser push. Let me just ask one other, ask you to talk about one other aspect here, and that is where there's a great quote on page 466 from our mutual acquaintance, Heike Young, who's uh, mm. she's at Salesforce. She's great. Yeah, you you probably knew her when you were working there, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah. I spoke to her last week. (laughs) Oh, you did? Well, do tell her I said hello. She interviewed me on the Salesforce uh, Marketing Cloud podcast some years back. Uh, She and uh, Joel Book, who I think is uh, retired. He's retired now. Yeah. Okay, enough name dropping here. Uh, (laughs) She's the Senior Director of Brand Marketing at Salesforce, and I'd like you to elaborate on this concept because it's my sense that not many people are thinking about this. And she says, the more I learn... The more I see great marketing is about listening. Listening to your audience is the heart of marketing. And then you quote Sarah Stockdale, a founder at Grow Class. Email marketing is a conversational tool. Yelling at someone about your launch feature or event is bad conversational etiquette. And good conversationalists bring something to the table. Insight, value, education, and they listen. So talk about what I think is a overlooked aspect of email marketing as a listening tool. Yeah. So I feel very strongly that if you're doing email marketing right, that it's a dialogue because you're sending messages and your subscribers individually are responding. 
They're sending you signals that you should be paying attention to. You know, if you were talking to someone and they started to have their attention drift away and it became pretty clear that they weren't really listening to anything you were saying, that's a signal. And that happens in email when they stop opening and they stop clicking for prolonged periods of time. That's a sign that they're not, you know, interested in what you're talking about. And at the same time, if you were talking to someone and if you mention something and they get animated and they start sharing back to you and responding to what you're saying, like, oh, well, that's a sign that you should talk more about that thing. And that's a really important concept for B2B marketers when you're trying to, you know, you know, score a lead and understand what they're interested in and kind of track that journey from, you know, a cold lead to a warm lead to a hot lead, like paying attention to those responses are critical to understanding when is the appropriate time to suggest other things that are in that same sphere and when is the appropriate time to get, you know, ultimately a salesperson involved. So I feel very strongly that email is a conversation. Uh, It doesn't, always have to be there are some you know say newsletters or some types of other like you know email driven um you know messages uh, message streams that can be fairly one directional but how most brands are using email today there's lots of opportunity for it to be a conversation for to get those nice feedback loops and to adjust your conversation so it's more in line with what that person is interested in Yes, it just seems like such an overlooked opportunity for businesses to understand more about their customers, and and I, I would encourage them to do that. I remember there was a, another Bostonian, David Cancel, who was on the show a few years back about his book on chatbots, conversational marketing. And I remember in that book, yeah, I'm, I'm sure this has been in other books, but I remember his book is the one where I it, it struck me, where he he talked about you know one of the best metrics is the reply. In other words, are you using your email when appropriate? to ask people questions and get them to reply. Yeah, it's a massively underused tactic. Yeah. Unfortunately, we've spent a lot of time convincing email users not to reply <laughs> to oh, our messages, but yes. replies are gold. Yes. They're really, really valuable. Inbox providers see that as a major signal that this is someone who should continue to get your email messages. And those replies themselves oftentimes tend to be really important for the customer relationship. Yes, because then they feel listened to. Well, oftentimes when they're replying, it's because they have an issue. Yeah. Uh, And usually it's pretty specific. And so there's a lot of opportunity there to address that thing, whether it's a problem or someone saying like, oh, hey, I'd like to learn more about that. Or can a salesperson reach out to me? It makes me really sad to think about all of the messages, all the replies to promotional emails that are from folks asking to be contacted because they want to spend money with the brand that then go unseen and unreplied to. Uh, Frightening. Yes. Well, before we wrap up, I want to ask about the future. And we've talked about that already, but I, I generally find that predictions about the future are about as accurate as the way Austin Powers describes it. Well, um, everyone has a flying car. Entire meals come in pill form. And the earth is ruled by damn dirty apes. But Chad S. White has a pretty good track record <laughs> on predictions about email marketing. What 
what are some of the ones that you see coming in the next uh, 10 years or six years uh, when you come back for your next uh, interview? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, in the third edition, I had 11 predictions. And this one, I've only got four. Uh, I think these are all really important to the future of email marketing. <laughs> so the first is that we're absolutely going to see tighter privacy restrictions. Um, and I think it's going to happen on multiple levels. We've already seen some platform privacy changes, you know, Apple's mail privacy protection certainly being the most notable, mm -hmm. um, you know, the sunsetting of third party cookies is sort of another area where platform privacy is changing. But I also both feel and really hope that here in the U.S. we're going to see a brand new national privacy law. We're so far behind the rest of the world at this point. You know, GDPR and uh, laws that are sort of in that realm are really predominant in the modern part of the world. And we are still crawling around with can spam. Uh, and you know, from what 2003, really, I think it was from right? 2003, which means that it was like formulated even before that. Um, right. Plus, it was just it was even weak in 2003. So it's just, I mean, it's so antiquated. Like the thing that frustrates me is that first of all, it's not enforced really at all, which is a problem because it sets a really low bar and then there's no enforcement. But if you were to read can spam and use that as your as your set of rules for how to do email marketing you would be block listed <laughs> like very quickly like you would be in trouble and your program would be on its deathbed like within a month well well thank goodness for the email service providers right for stepping up yeah oh for sure you joke in the book that can spam means you can spam people <laughs> but the email service providers are uh, making it so that it's almost an irrelevant law and that you still can't yes. go do these bad things. Yeah, so yeah, things have definitely changed just a ton since there and since, since that time. And you're right, inbox providers are the rule makers for yeah. how to do things today in terms of deliverability. They're, they're holding all the power. Um, but certainly on the legal side of things, they could they could create laws that would set better expectations to reduce the amount of work that inbox providers have to do. Right. I'm kind of sticking up for inbox providers here. Inbox providers have to clean up a lot of bad behavior because our laws are so awful. Yeah, they're um, carrying so more water than they should have to. They, they should. Yeah, well, we they hear more and more about here. tighter privacy restrictions, and that is not going away. And it's not just for email. Yeah, for all the channels. And and it's hard for marketers. Um, I know that marketers would love to have looser laws, but there's there's no putting this genie back in the bottle. This trend is not going to suddenly reverse itself. So we've got to get much better at you know collecting zero and first party data in responsible ways and creating you know stronger relationships rather than trying to kind of force our way, you know, into, you know, <laughs> in, into relationships with folks that don't want to be involved with us, so that's not gonna that's not gonna change. That's that's something we've got to get you know, a grip on. Uh, the second thing, which I've already sort of mentioned, is omnichannel. We now finally have some tools to actually live up to 
expectations that consumers have had for quite some time now to act as a single brand across channels. Things like customer data platforms, better analytics are going to make it so that we can actually act as a single brand across all of our channels. And we finally move uh, in a major way from being like multi-channel brands to omni-channel brands. So that's super exciting. I think there's lots of, ex- uh, lots of opportunity there. The third big thing for the future is more uh, machine learning and AI. Obviously, generative AI has been a major topic sort of oh, everywhere. It's all over my LinkedIn uh, newsfeed, yeah. Yeah, there I, I, I'm a here and now skeptic. But for the future, like sort of long term, I think there's lots of things to be very optimistic about when it comes to generative AI. But I feel like we're kind of jumping past all the opportunities there are with machine learning and other forms of AI that aren't large language um, uh, models. So that's it's actually that other part that I'm really excited about. I think there's lots of opportunity with machine learning and non-generative AI to make our programs way better. I think a generative AI is still early days. It may not, you know, LLMs may not even be the model that ultimately um, we all sort of rely on. There's, I think everyone is sort of seeing the downside of what LLMs can do in terms of hallucination, um, which are not good. Some of these hallucinations are really, really awful. Uh, I could share other stories with you, but I won't uh, digress. Now, that then, acronym you just used, what was that? ML? Large language model. Okay. So that's what ChatGPT is. That's what uh, BARD is. And essentially, it's a model that helps these tools put one word after another word. But it, it these models don't have any sense of whether or not what they're saying is right or wrong. They just know... Hey, does it probabilistically make sense? Is it uh, is it a sentence that makes sense? Um, and you know, we've definitely seen a lot of problems with these models when it comes to getting facts correct, um, which most brands should care about <laughs> whether or not you're getting things factually correct or not. Right, but they're 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 tools that are going to help. I I just see a lot of uh, what do you call it, pearl clutching or fatalism. You know how marketers love to write blog posts like fill in the blank is dead. Oh, well, <laughs> content email marketing, marketing is, <laughs> yeah. email marketing has been the subject of a lot of those. Yes. Uh, SEO is dead. Sure. Content marketing is dead. All that sort of thing. So it's like, come, calm down folks. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we're like in a Kodak moment, right? Like Kodak's decline was like really rapid. Um, I don't <laughs> think that that's what we're experiencing here. I think what we're experiencing is going to be much more akin to the threat of self-driving cars and self-driving trucks for the most part, right? Number one profession in America is truck driver. Uh, The potential of self-driving trucks to put a ton of people out of work is really huge. And it's something that we've been fretting about for a very long period of time, you know, many, 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 many years that has not come to pass and doesn't seem like it's frankly, super imminent even now that that's going to happen. So I feel like it's going to be a pretty long arc. There's a lot of drawbacks Mm -hmm. with LLMs that really curtail just how useful they can be. But make no mistake, you know, Microsoft alone is investing, you know, over $10 billion in improving these models. They're going to get better. They're going to get more useful. 
But I think we're still like at best at like that very awkward early early adolescent phase of this technology. It is not ready um, to be running your email marketing program or any aspect of your marketing program. Mm-hmm. Well, Chad, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I'd hope they would take to heart the hierarchy of subscriber needs, which I talk about at the beginning of volume two. Mm-hmm. And this is a framework for understanding how value is created in the email marketing space by, ser- by serving the needs of subscribers. And it starts by creating respectful subscriber experiences, then functional subscriber experiences, then valuable ones, and then ultimately, at least occasionally, some remarkable subscriber experiences. And all of them kind of form a pyramid where they're all kind of based on the layer before it. It's like it's hard to create value if you're not creating functional email experiences. And no matter how much value you feel in your is in your email, it doesn't mean anything if you haven't started by creating a respectful email experience that values permission. Yes. Great section of the book, uh, very beginning of uh, volume two. You know, like at the end of each, uh, most of your chapters, you've got the uh, exercises. Mm -hmm. What is one thing a listener could do today just to get started, to put in action one of the many ideas from your book? You know, for somebody who hasn't even read it, but maybe has ordered it and is waiting for it to arrive. What's one thing a person could do today to get them started in the right direction? I guess do a test, you know, Pick something to test, something you think that will move the needle, whether it's a design element or changing a hero image in a message um, or, you know, outside of the email itself, like doing a test on your signup form or um, on some other aspect of of your email program that, you know, has a landing page. So have a theory, have a hypothesis. And then test it to see if you're right. And we talked earlier about how often you'll, you'll probably be wrong. There's lots of opportunities there to like learn through testing. It's definitely part of, you know, we talked about a dialogue. Testing is one of those ways oh. that you can also continue that dialogue, put something out there, listen to the response, and then improve your behavior based on the response from your subscribers. Well, I think that's a pretty good answer, Chad S. White. Thank you know, you. it also brings to mind, like, what what are you testing? Are you testing? <laughs> it's back certainly to the... could test more. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of tests definitely are very narrow. You know, subject lines get tested a lot, mm-hmm. which is important, but not, you know, not everything. That's not, there's lots of other things you can test uh, as well. So, yeah, there's not enough testing that happens and the testing that does happen tends to be very narrowly focused. Yes. Love to see broader broader testing, especially of things like automation. Uh, those tend to get uh, the set it and forget it mentality is alive and well. And oh, those yeah. are the, the last thing that you want to set and forget it. Those are so valuable. Doing testing on those can really generate fantastic returns. Well said. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Yeah, so I just got, uh, last week, I got the second edition of Epic Content Marketing by oh, Joe Pulisi yes. and, and Brian Piper. So I've been reading that. Um, 
I'll confess that I skipped to the end. I was really interested in all the Web3 stuff and what their take was. Mm-hmm. So I skipped ahead and I, and I read all of that first and read about like the future of content marketing. And then uh, just last night, started to, to go back to the beginning of the book and, and, and start to read it. So really enjoying that. Uh, definitely check that out. I enjoyed uh, the first edition, but obviously that was quite some time ago. So lots of updates. Yeah. And I just recently interviewed Joe about that edition. And that's one of those books like yours, or uh, let me just think of a couple others, like your book, Epic Content Marketing Part 2, Everybody Writes Second Edition, and Content Chemistry Volume 6 by Andy Crescidina. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just to, you know, just those right there are such a great foundation. And there are many others. Uh, shout out to all my uh, beloved other authors who've been on the show, but very practical, great recommendation. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including uh, all the books that have been mentioned, your site, Email Marketing Rules, which is a great resource. And every one of you listeners should go subscribe to his newsletter uh, about email marketing, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account. And now, dear listener, I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out in some way to Chad. Congratulate him on this monumental fourth edition of the book. Thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. When he writes that fifth edition, you know, he, he's probably wondering, well, which podcast should I go back to? Please reach out to him, thank him, and uh, he'll come back in 2029. Uh, send him a message on LinkedIn or Twitter, or, or like I said, just go to his website. He seems like a very responsive person. And guests on the show have told me that they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners, and not just because Chad, uh, marketing book podcast listeners are so ridiculously good looking. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the marketing book podcast on your favorite podcast app, like Spotify or Apple podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is Email Marketing Rules, 184 Best Practices to Optimize the Subscriber Experience and Drive Business Success. The author is Chad S. White. Chad, thank you very much for returning to the marketing book podcast. Thanks for having me back, Douglas. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune.